Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. I'm Matt and I'm joined with Becky and Fraser. How are you doing, guys? Good, thanks, Matt. Excited for today's episode. Absolutely. Yeah. Fraser, how are you getting on? I'm good. Almost, almost human again after COP. Almost. Finally decompressed. Finally good. Feeling feeling ready to go after getting out from under the mountain of emails. Yeah, you look you look refreshed. Yes, yeah, so your colours back yeah. in your I'm I'm not crying. I've finally stopped crying. <laughs> no. Out of the bedroom. That's good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And in fact, you know, I think we're kind of picking up on the COP twenty six theme a little bit maybe getting a bit of closure Mm. to events Um, and we've got Professor Dave Ray with us today to talk a bit more about COP so uh, some of you may remember Dave from our very first episode Uh, Dave is a Professor of Carbon Management and Education at Edinburgh University he's also Director of the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute and also long list (laughs) Policy Director at Climate Exchange These solutions are not a silver bullet okay, if we scaled this up to everyone, how many planets would we need? And I think we'd need about 10. So making that that kind of reality check in terms of what the science is behind this kind of nature-based solution approach, but also its limitations and the context it's working in. So Dave really knows what he's talking about. He's been very close to COP26. Yeah, absolutely. I bumped into him there and it was absolutely brilliant to see him, you know, <laughs> have a have a quick chat with somebody who really knew what was going on. So really special episode to, to have Dave back. And, you know, we started this, we started Local Zero with a year to go to COP and Dave's insights about, you know, what the what that coming year was going to leave us with having to do to prepare. So yeah. it seems so fitting to have him back after COP. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're really looking forward today for him to kind of translate what the outcomes of COP26 uh, kind of been for you and I, um, bring it right down to the kind of personal local level. Um, and of course, it has been a full year since we did this last. So we are now, Fraser... 28 episodes in this is the 28th this is episode 28 not including our, our cop diaries so actually technically we're we're well over well over 30 episodes now yeah and we've we hear from our producers our trusted producers that we've had 20,000 listens wow. uh, which is fantastic so thank you to all of you who've been listening over the past year it's been an absolute whirlwind so 
we're, we're, we're back. Um, Fraser, I think you're even back with Future of Fiction later. I am, I am. The thing that everyone's been waiting for, I, I'm sure our listens are going to go up again <laughs> now that people know that Future of Fiction stay, is back. Stay <laughs> tuned, yeah. Or just skip <laughs> frantically forward to the end bit. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so before we get into our chat with Dave, just a reminder that if you want to follow our conversation on social media or reach out to us for suggestions for future episodes, Find us on Twitter and follow us there. We are at Local Zero Pod. And if you've got some longer thoughts you want to share, because I certainly can't fit it all into a tweet, feel free to email us. We are localzeropod at gmail.com. But for now, let's get into the interview. I'm Dave Ray. I work at the University of Edinburgh and I direct the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute. Welcome back. Uh, it'll have been some time uh, since we last had you on. In fact, you were our very first guest, so it's an extra special welcome back. Um, and since we saw you, a little event happened a couple of weeks back, which um, I think we were both at, which was COP26. So I think we must begin there and just ask you, how was COP? Did you have a good one? What were your highlights and your lowlights? I had a good COP. I mean, it was um, it was exhilarating every day, just in terms of the people from all over the world, all uh, focused on climate action. I mean, it, it's it's like a dream come true, I guess, for a, a climate geek like me. Uh, but it was exhausting as well. So certainly, um, given it's two weeks, by the second week I was flagging, and by the final weekend when um, they were still working on the final wording for the Glasgow Climate Pact, um, I think everyone was really tired. The poor negotiators. I mean, you know, they, hopefully they all get a bit of a holiday after COP. Um, so yeah, really good experience. Really glad to be there. I think Glasgow nailed it as a host city. Um, really proud that that Scotland did such a good job. More generally, um, uh, I guess the big kicker to COP twenty six for me was um, just aside from the outcomes, uh, whether they were some of them were good, some of them less impressive. Um, is just what happens next mm. as ever with a COP. You can have that intense two weeks, um, lots of announcements, but as we know. Emissions are, you know, carbon still being emitted. Um, CO two concentrations are still going up in the atmosphere. The time is running out, definitely on the Paris climate goals. Um, so you kind of feel like certainly we as academics, um, you know, we can't rest on our laurels and go, oh, okay, yep. we've done that. We'll do COP again next year. Uh, but certainly for heads of state, for cities, for local government, for everyone, we're still in this decade of of action. Um, and so, yeah, every day that ticks by before the next COP uh, needs to lead to more action. And you said it's been a bit of a roller coaster. I mean, I definitely can echo that <laughs> feeling. One minute you're right up the top and things are going great. And the next you just feel like you want to crawl under the covers. Yeah. Um, but just kind of reflecting back on some of those highs and some of those lows. I mean, what for you came out as, as a key success? Um, over the two weeks, particularly thinking about the Glasgow Climate Pact? Yeah, the biggest success for me was around uh, the Paris rule book. So that has a context which goes back, obviously, to the Paris Agreement in terms of how actually all of the commitments at a national level, which add up to global action on climate change, how they actually work, how robust they are, how transparent the reporting is, what timescales, um, how things like carbon trading um, should work. Uh, all of those things um, were long-running areas of contention. Uh, so at the last COP in Madrid, um, agreement 
wasn't reached, uh, particularly on Article 6, which covers the, the carbon trading. We got agreement on that rule book at Glasgow. And in general, it was pretty robust. It, it addressed some of the big worries. So for me, that was probably the biggest success. It was one of those outcomes, I guess, the media didn't cover much because it's so um, so wrapped up in um, UN speak and um, it's, it's quite geeky. But actually, for me, it was it was crucial because if we had had loads of great commitments, and, and we'll probably come on to this, we didn't get enough, anywhere near enough in terms of national commitments um, to reduce emissions and to uh, adapt to climate change um, in line with the Paris Climate Agreement. But actually, even if we had had those, if the rule book hadn't been agreed or if it had been full of loopholes, then that would have undermined the whole thing. So actually, that rule book for me was a real success. So it's about the integrity of those commitments. So how you can deliver on um, net zero. So you know your nationally determined contribution. Mm-hmm. You can have a very ambitious one, but unless you know the rule book backs that up and that action is clear and agreed amongst different parties, one set of commitments may not actually mirror or, or be comparable to another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there were. There's lots of elements to the rule, but one of them is transparency, just in terms of what you're saying you're doing. Um, because the way the Paris Agreement works is there isn't a kind of big UN stick to beat people with for failing. It's down to their their domestic politics and what rules, like we have the Climate Change Act here in the UK, which is essentially our, our, our stick uh, for keeping government on track. But one of the key things for those commitments nations make is that transparency how are they reporting progress are they hiding bad practice are they just um, lacking any capacity to actually report and so that was a key one is was the transparency of action on climate change um, was was agreed as part of the rule book the other one was there were big loopholes around um, carbon trading and carbon markets in the original text or interpretations that you could make which could in theory have been used to say oh yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of doing really well in terms of sequestering carbon or keeping carbon locked up in our forests in this particular country. Um, but we're also selling all of the, the kind of climate benefits of that to another country or a, a business overseas, so they can count it as well. And obviously all the atmosphere sees is, is one um, bit of progress rather than doubling it. So that double counting issue, there are still some double counting risks within the rule book but the really big gaping holes on those um, were closed. And that was that was crucial. And I want to come back to um, to what we were just saying about these um, nationally determined contributions or, or NDCs, which I guess sort of sits, as we were saying, sits alongside the rule book. And, and uh, you said you didn't think that, that we've gone far enough. We've not been ambitious enough. So, I mean, is this something that you're seeing as, as perhaps uh, an area of failure? Um, and ultimately, do you think that we are or can get on track to keep that 1.5 alive has been, has been like the kind of slogan of the conference. It has been, hasn't it? So that, I mean, it was a failure. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an over-optimist always with COPs in terms of what they'll deliver. But this was, this had the strongest evidence base to it. And, and the most, it felt like the most listened to in terms of the scientific community, IPCC, obviously the six assessment report, the working group one report, came out before COP26. We've had, um, I guess, a really strong voice of academia in terms of what's required. Um, And that wasn't translated into those um, national commitments. So around, you know, reaching 1.5, we know those commitments, even if they're all delivered, and that's a big question, and the long-term ones. So 
The nationally determined contributions run to 2030 and they're crucial. A lot of nations have come through with um, longer term net zero targets, the you know, middle of the century or beyond, um, and, and they're good to see. But even if all of those, and that's like I say, a big if, are delivered on, 1.5 is still dies. So for me, as not just as an optimist, but as a, someone who loves the fact the science is being listened to across all walks of life, not just uh, in terms of the climate crisis, um, that was a disappointment that even with that kind of, you know, um, overt message from us as a community, um, the, the commitments, the political will uh, didn't match uh, the science. Um, so is 1.5 still alive? Again, going back to the science and the physics, uh, possibly, um, it's been called on life support. And if we look at, like I say, all those commitments, we look at uh, the uncertainty around climate sensitivity, so how much warming you get for a certain amount of emissions, then um, we could still limit uh, temperatures to 1.5, probably with, um, that's during this century, but probably uh, with a, a kind of a line or a trajectory where we go over that during the century and then we come back down to 1.5 by the end of the century, which uh, you might still, you would definitely call a failure if you're being hit by the impacts of that. Um, uh, so, so yeah, you can you can not bend the science, but you can interpret the science and, and our our uncertainty in terms of things like climate sensitivity to say 1.5 is still alive, but wow, is it on life support, yeah. And just for people that might not be kind of completely on top of the science, why is that 1.5 so important? 1.5 is, is, it's got many dimensions to it in terms of, um, of it, as you go over there, over 1.5, you get increased climate impacts and in, increased climate risks. And, and we get that with every, every kind of fraction of a degree increase in global temperature. One of the key things we've got with 1.5 and 2 degrees, which are the kind of key numbers in the Paris Agreement is that um, the IPCC and the, so this is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so climate scientists around the world have specifically looked at those two numbers and, and looked at what additional negative impacts you get as you go between 1.5 and 2 and they are massive, not just for humans, you know, millions of livelihoods affected negatively but also to ecosystems and we know as we push towards that two degrees and certainly above it we also have negative impacts on ecosystems, which at the moment are helping us limit climate change by storing carbon up, by sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. So the more we push beyond those, the more we start to lose control. And actually, we get into a situation of these feedback mechanisms kicking in, things like forest dieback. Forests and peatlands and the like. Yeah, yeah. So that 1.5, I guess it's partly a success story because it was when in, within the Paris Agreement, if you read the text of that, uh, if, if you're feeling um, like you need some sleep. Uh, but if you get to that bit, you'll see that was um, that was an ambition. So two degrees was really the target. And then it was, you know, really uh, the ambition to actually uh, limit warming to 1.5. The narrative has changed completely around that because the impacts we're already seeing at 1.1, 1.2 are very big, very negative. And at 1.5, they get significantly more. So 1.5 is not safe. It's not a safe climate limit, but it limits a lot of the, 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 the kind of extra damage that we would see if we let temperatures rise up to two or above. So Dave, where does that leave us in terms of next steps through this COP process? So listeners will be, some will be aware, some won't. 
COP26 just been because there were 25 COPs prior to this, uh, actually 27 years, I think, because we missed a year. Yeah. But next year, it goes to Egypt for COP27. And with that, as I understand it, these countries are going to have to come back with their nationally determined contributions. Maybe. Maybe. So so could you fill us in with what the process is is going forward now? Yeah, so, so the, the Glasgow Climate Pact, which was, um, I think, a, a really a really useful document. It's, it's reasonably long as far as these things go. And part of what it does is it requests all nations to come up with um, renewed commitments for climate action, like you say, for, for the Egypt COP, uh, which will be next November, so in, in this next 12 months. And that's recognition that we're not on track for 1.5 and that we can't wait another five years, which basically there's a mechanism in the Paris Agreement to say, Every five years, nations will increase their ambition, a ratchet mechanism to move us towards the Paris climate goals. And, and obviously, like we were talking about on the scientific basis, we haven't got five years just to wait. Actually, we need to ratchet up that ambition uh, more quickly. So, so doing it in the next 12 months. But that is not something which is going to happen from all countries. So there is the request there, the expectation that all nations will update their contributions, their commitments. A lot of countries won't. Uh, so we had about 40 who didn't for Glasgow when they were supposed to. Mm. A lot of countries who did will say, well, we've just done ours and we haven't got capacity to do it again and we can't get things through domestically over that time period. So it's important to have it as a signal to say, look, five years is too long to wait before we do this again. Uh, but in reality, um, expecting all 197 parties to the Climate Change Convention to bring in new nationally determined contributions for the Egypt COP um, uh, even as an over-optimist, uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so does that leave us in a in a potential bind where we, if we're going to keep 1.5 alive and many of these countries aren't necessarily going to come back to the table with improved nationally determined contributions, i.e. improved ambition, then doesn't that, you know, that, that shortfall between 1.5 and current stated ambition, does, does that, will that just persist? Possibly beyond the next sort of COP process? Yeah, so, so it's not so much the numbers as who updates their NDCs and what that further ambition is. So if we think about one of the surprise things at COP was the, the, the kind of the clear dialogue that's going on between the US and China as the two biggest emitters and, you know, huge economic powers as well. Um, and actually, we'll see what happens in terms of their NDCs, the, the US and China they could make a huge difference if they up up their ambition. Um, but also what we saw at COP were quite a few multilateral declarations and initiatives, which will, if they're carried through, cut emissions very significantly and limit warming. Uh, so things like methane, you know, cutting methane, things like um, stopping deforestation. So those kind of things would be um, not strictly speaking within NDC, certainly, you know, because they're multilateral and they're, they're really, they might be represented in some of the NDCs, but they, they give you an additive effect. So in terms of that keeping 1.5 alive, we're probably going to, if we've got a chance of it, uh, in reality, it's going to be the big emitters increasing their commitments. Um, it's going to be these multilateral processes um, giving us more emissions outside of the essentially the UNFCCC process. And it's going to be that happening 
not just for Egypt, and then we wait another five years, but actually this is going to have to be part of the cycle every year, is kind of saying, what is the science telling us? We know next year we'll get the rest of the six assessment report, we'll get the mitigation, the impacts and adaptation reports. They are going to give stark messages again, and hopefully big impetus to say, look, you know, we are well short here, uh, but we know what we need to do to give us a chance of limiting uh, to 1.5, and then the onus will come on as it has to, the richest countries, the countries the most ability to act, and the biggest emitters. Uh, so finance will play into that, obviously, in terms of making sure that action is commensurate with what's needed. Absolutely. And while we're picking on countries, let's talk about the UK. So mm. how how have we done in terms of our own contribution and, and commitments? Uh, do you think that we need to be more ambitious? But more to the point, What's that actually going to mean now, assuming that we see follow through? Yeah. So, I mean, in one way, you can say we've got we've got ambitious targets in the UK and Scotland. And you can say, oh, they're aligned with Paris climate goals. You can argue against that by saying, well, for one, they're based on domestic emissions and and, uh, a significant amount of our emissions are are outside of our shores through imports uh, and the the export of industry um, uh, over the last few decades. One of the key things, uh, so that I've, my main two criticisms of the UK uh, effort is, one, if we look at the fair share, so you look at our historical responsibility for emissions, and you also look at our capability to act, actually our targets aren't Paris compliant on that, um, that basis. And so to make up that gap, we need to finance a huge amount of climate action overseas. And we're not seeing that from the UK in terms of its financial commitments. The other criticism, criticism I would say, um, is that our domestic targets, yes, they're they're ambitious compared to other nations, um, but actually the actions we we're taking to meet those are nowhere near what's required. So, climate change committee, I think their estimate is, you know, we're, we're kind of a uh, twenty twenty five percent in terms of uh, the actions which are being taken uh, compared to what's needed to deliver our our net zero target, but also the, the kind of five year carbon budgets. Uh, so. So we're, we're kind of, we're talking a reasonable talk, uh, but not really walking uh, the walk, I'd say, for the UK. So I just wonder, Dave, on that front, you know, does will the legacy of COP26 change much, do you think, from the UK perspective? We've seen UK government position themselves, rightly or wrongly, as the leaders of this COP26 uh, process. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's the presidency, Alex Sharma, and you know, there's quite a lot of political capital intertwined with the success of, of COP, which is, you know, is is natural. But looking forward to deliver on the Glasgow Pact, do you see the UK government and devolved administration stepping up to lead the way in terms of ensuring that action meets the ambition? Or do you see sort of business as usual continuing? Yeah, um, I wish I had a crystal ball. I think the, D- the, D- the devolved administration is really interesting because we saw Scotland stepping up on some issues like loss and damage, um, which are going to be hugely important for the Africa COP in Egypt and, and going forward. Uh, so Scotland, I think, was the first nation to actually commit money, or albeit a drop in the ocean, in terms of dealing with climate change, which is already happening, which is going to happen even with adaptation, so negative impacts. That That's part of our fair share is is making sure those financial flows kind of um, do flow uh, to where it's needed. And that's where there's a question over the UK presidency over these these next um, 11 months is 
There was a failure for the $100 billion a year uh, for climate finance, and that was a failure of, of all rich nations, um, but definitely a failure of the presidency to make that happen. And there is a, there's a kind of a fudge equation in terms of, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll go above that by 2023, and so average, it'll be $100 billion. But they, for me, what they, the UK government absolutely need to do uh, in the run-up to COP27 is say, we have delivered that $100 billion um dollars a year in terms of climate finance and that they actually are looking at the way the uk finances climate action overseas being in the context of what is a fair share so looking at is it just double counting stuff which is international um, aid um, is it stuff which is uh, actually their loans rather than grants which actually you know hinder that development overseas um, there's a big question, I think, about the role of the UK government in in showing leadership there. Leadership isn't just about those targets, uh, particularly some of the targets which this government won't be, you know, the, the personalities won't be part of the government when they're due those targets. Um, but it is about that international leadership. And for me, that is getting that finance flowing uh, back to Copenhagen, that commitment of 100 billion, but going beyond there, addressing loss and damage, getting to that fair share. Um, in terms of reaching the Paris climate goals. You mentioned the, the 100 billion, Dave, and obviously we, we know we can be doing more in the UK in general. Do you think there's maybe an issue here of accountability on these promises and on the commitments that we're trying to make? And is there any way to improve that formally to make sure that we're sticking to what we need to do, but also trying to, to prompt other countries to do what they need to do as well? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a, the strength and the weakness of the Paris Agreement is it's only as strong as as the, the nations and, and how they're held accountable domestically. And so for us, I mean, the Climate Change Act is useful, but we've seen over the, the past year on things like finance, um, the cuts to ODA budgets, um, the kind of the double counting of, of funding as well that's being used under the banner of climate finance. Um, that needs to be called out. That's Part of that is a role for us, I guess, as academia, for independent bodies like Climate Change Committee. It's a real role for Parliament, actually, and, and for cross-party um, kind of uh, uh, committees to kind of question this and, and, um, and, and challenge the government, because it is going to be something where, yes, public finances are really tight. You know, we're in a pandemic, all nations are. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, it must be hugely tempting for the Treasury to, to try and get away with doing the, the minimal on climate action, particularly international climate action, because there are so many other interests you want to, to kind of meet. There's the political uh, context of trying to stay popular as a government. Um, but the reality is, if they listen to, hopefully, their advisors, if they listen to certainly the scientists, but also just take a long view about this country, which I imagine you know they really care about its, its, its future, then actually the best investment they can make is to make real climate finance contributions for international action. Because that that 1.5 we're talking about, that will affect the UK somewhat directly in terms of the impacts, but massively indirectly through migration pressures, political instability, commodity prices, all these things that um, the Treasury really cares about and, and the government really cares about. So taking that long view um, is something that I know it's difficult in a four or five year kind of parliamentary period to kind of do that, but they've got to do that. And that's still a gap, in my view, um, for 
inevitably for most governments around the world. And I'm not a spokesperson for the Scottish government by any means. But for me, in terms of developed world governments, they're a government who gets it more than most in terms of that long view, the just transition view of that, not making the mistakes of the past. And like I say, our role internationally, not just domestically, in tackling climate change. Golly, like the conversation so far just highlights how many different kind of facets there are to what, <laughs> what went on at COP. I mean, no wonder the negotiations went you know, right through to that final weekend. And I feel like we could probably talk for hours about all of this. But, you know, this is Local Zero. So I just want to take some of this and bring it back to what this actually means, um, you know, in the UK, in Scotland. So, you know, assuming that we, uh, the, you know, you said that the UK is only delivering on about 25% on uh, of what we actually need to be doing. But let's assume that that ramps up and we do start mm. delivering action. I guess, first of all, is that likely? But but secondly, and more importantly for me, like, what's that actually going to mean? What's that going to mean for our cities, for our businesses, for our communities, for our households? You know, how's that going to translate into day-to-day -day life? Yes, yeah, so I... I do believe it will happen, that that ramp up will happen just because of the, the scrutiny our government has and because of the legal basis for our carbon budgets um, and, and you know, folk like the Climate Change Committee actually, you know, being pretty hard nosed about what needs to be done as well as, you know, uh, Parliament itself. I think what that means for all of us is it's a lot of stuff which is not going to be a surprise because we've we've had it announced what needs to happen in terms of transport so you know much more uh, mass transit systems electrification of our transport system for our homes retrofitting is, is is huge and that's something probably all of us are going to experience during this decade because we have to if we've got a home at the moment and we've got essentially a fossil fuel powered heating system so a lot of us on the gas uh, system that's going to have to change and it might be that the actual the boiler doesn't look that much different depending on you know whether it's a heat pump or it's a hydrogen boiler but there will be some disruption for us and there will be for those people who can afford it a cost because um, there's a saving for these things in terms of their running costs a bit like electric cars uh, in many cases um, but actually for it to be progressive rather than regressive um, it needs to take into account the, the economic status of, of individuals and communities so that whole leveling up agenda this is it's one of my biggest frustrations, actually, is um, if we do net zero as a nation and we do it in a really well thought out way in terms of the current inequalities across our society uh, and spatially different regions, actually, we can address some of the really deep rooted problems in our nation. Um, so that just transition uh, concept. And hopefully we will see that. But I think for our everyday lives, it will be a lot more around, I guess, uh, like I say, how we heat our homes, how we how we travel about. I think in terms of what we see day to day, we're already at a really high level of awareness of climate change. There was a survey out today indicating it was people's priority in terms of action within the UK off the back of COP26. I suppose that that's also pushed up awareness. But then it comes into our working lives, our schools, what our kids are learning, what we're doing in our jobs, you know, actually, how is how are we using energy in our offices? How are we traveling to work? How are our jobs actually contributing to uh, the net zero transition? So outside of the, the disruption to someone changing your boiler, actually, it's that mainstreaming, it is climate change being a bit like COVID has been 
um, in the last um, you know, 18 months or more, but in a much more positive future proofing way, uh, climate change being mainstreamed into everything we do from what we buy in the shops through to where we go on holiday. And that, that has to be where we get to. So, Dave, I think on that, um, maybe to finish on this, I, I read a fantastic article in The Guardian uh, earlier this month, which covered some of the work that you're doing uh, outside of the day job, or at least a sort of crossover. So I just wondered, given this is Local Zero, and we're talking about personal local action to tackle the global issue of climate change, I wonder whether you could tell us about some of the fantastic things that you're personally doing um, in Scotland. Uh, on your on your own land, so you know, obviously, l- landscape change and transformation is a key part of how we store and manage carbon. Um, so I don't. I, the listeners, I'm no doubt, will be interested to hear what you're doing and and how you found it. Really, yeah, I'm mainly having a lot of fun, Matt, um, because I love <laughs> it. It did look a lot of fun. I have to yeah, say. I, I mean, I, I love the outdoors uh, generally, but um, our farms on the west coast of Scotland, so it's beautiful. And I, one of the things I'm a real a bit of a soil and carbon geek and it's got a lot of soil sometimes that's mainly mud actually at this time of year given the rain we've had but just understanding it so i've done a lot of measuring of how much carbon is in the soil um and that's been really really interesting just to understand you know from one field to another why one's higher carbon than the other um and baseline all of that and then we were planting trees on not all of it because some bits we want to keep as meadow and, and, and enhance the biodiversity there. But generally, I guess, manage the farm to try and sequester more carbon, but do that in a, again, going back to my carbon geek roots, in a way where it's quantified. And actually, the changes we're making in terms of plant, they're all native tree species, but how do certain tree species um, change the soil carbon? How fast do they grow in, in those Atlantic storms? Um, what happens biodiversity-wise? It's really, I'm loving it because it's, you know, it's it's getting muddy and it's seeing stuff grow. Going over and seeing the trees grow is so exciting. And, and this was formerly, Dave, this was formerly a sheep farm. It was, yeah. Or, or, or is still a sheep farm and is sort of 30 hectares on, on the coast there. Exactly, yeah. So we've taken sheep off a third of it already. Um, so that's where we're doing a lot of tree planting and, and intensively looking at what's happening in, the, in terms of the soil carbon. But my my plan, and that's, now going to be realized well fingers crossed in terms of covid restrictions is to take our students over there so you know just to i've got an ulterior motive which is for them to help plant trees yeah of, of course yeah <laughs> um but more importantly um to discuss i guess what we're doing over there in a really small scale in terms of sequestering more carbon enhancing biodiversity but talk about the role of these nature-based solutions in the context of the livelihoods of the sheep farmers and, and the community but also how these solutions are not a silver bullet. So talking about, okay, if we scaled this up to everyone, how many planets would we need? And I think we'd need about 10. Um, so making that, that kind of reality check in terms of what the science is behind this kind of nature-based solution approach, but also its limitations and the context it's working in. Um, so hopefully, yeah, a big band of happy students with uh, free pizza and beer will mean lots of trees get planted. It's making me want to do another degree, Dave. Um, <laughs> and I'd also like to, well, we'll finish on this, but I just love the bit in there. He said it made made you want to live forever so you could actually see the the impact of, of what you were doing, which uh, I thought was a nice nice sentiment. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, some of the trees we're planting, so particularly oak, you know, they're going to be in their prime 
um, long after I'm gone. And I'm gutted I won't get to see them. Um, but it's, I suppose, um, one of the really nice things is is seeing now that they're growing and, and knowing that maybe 100 years time, there'll be a field course over there um, and they'll be like measuring the oaks and going, oh, there's some some weird climate geek called Dave Ray who planted this. Um, and uh, that would be a, a great legacy. That would be a lovely legacy. Well, Dave, thank you so much. Um, and I hope you might be able to stick around uh, very briefly for our future or fiction game. I honestly can't recall whether you did it last time you were on, but if you haven't, it's worth sticking around for. Um, so if you're willing and able, Fraser, um, over to you. Yeah, we're back. We're back, finally. I know the listeners have had to trudge through just hours of us talking and whinging about cop. <laughs> but here's the here's the good stuff again, the stuff we've all been waiting for. So, for the uninitiated, Future or Fiction is a game that we play at the end of every episode with the, the panellists, with the hosts, where I present you with a new, innovative idea, technology-based. You decide if it's real, i.e. it's the future, or if you think I've completely made it up. So Becky, are you are you ready for this one? I know you like the titles a lot. I, I love your titles. Come on, hit me with it. <laughs> <laughs> so this this episode's innovation is called Volcano Way, Jose. <laughs> that is, <laughs> I'm very, I, I can keep a straight oh. face for that. Sorry, that is <laughs> Volcano Way, Jose. <laughs> So the premise of this is simple. We know that geothermal is a great and vast source of energy, but how about this? States in regions with lots of volcanoes are locating new tech and industrial projects at the bases of those volcanoes to harness the massive geothermal power as their main source of energy. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? Well, I have a lot of opinions on this because I lived in New Zealand for some years. But I'm going <laughs> to hand over to Dave first because I feel like if you've got to grips with the land and the farming, then maybe you've got some some special insights that Matt and I can like hang our own ideas off of. <laughs> okay. I mean, it would be somewhat wonderful if we still had active uh, volcanoes on the West Coast, but also um, a bit worrying. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm going to go for... Um, this seems likely to me just in terms of what iceland have done like you say becky new zealand a lot of areas in the world um we've seen use being made of um volcanic activity uh and geothermal energy um so i'm gonna i'm gonna go for uh it being true that this is um expanding okay okay straight off with the future guys what do you think do you want to leech off of these expertise here <laughs> well i've just wanted to press you a bit more fraser if i feel like i'm put you in the dark and need to cross-examine okay. you a little bit this, more this always goes well. done wrong in the last 35 episodes um <laughs> so how does this work um so obviously there's lots of heat being generated by these volcanoes i'm assuming what you're saying is there's some mm -hmm. uh, district heating system that's drawing heat away from this or heat exchanger and, and pushing it a, around a development, a little town or, or, or what have you. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not like on the top of a, of a volcano with a, a huge... Because that would be silly, wouldn't it? Extractor. <laughs> That's, that would be ridiculous. That would be crazy. <laughs> that would be fiction. Yes, tapping into, as you would understand, tapping geothermal mines, for instance. Like Dave says, the, the Iceland idea. Okay. Well, I, I think it's future because it's probably also present i mean if, if they if they are kind of already doing this but certainly there's the source of energy there that needs tapping into but i will defer to becky who again has the engineering background to prove otherwise 
I don't think that's ever helped me in any of the previous episodes. Um, so I, I'm I'm inclined to believe bits of this. So I'm very inclined to believe the possibility of tapping into these as sources of energy. I'm not quite as inclined to believe that it's leading to local business and industry. And I only say that because I think I see more instances of where this is actually, you know, energy that's then fed into the grid in some capacity and moved around. And and like perhaps this isn't true for everywhere, but my goodness me, like when I went to the certain parts of New Zealand where there were where there was this activity, like it smelled really bad. Like the sulfur smell is overpowering. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that's gonna have like any bearing on the choice of where to locate your business um and so on. But yeah, so I kind of see the possibility in harnessing that and generating energy. But I'm going to go with fiction for this one. So you don't, you don't, you challenge more the application. You don't see it as like, yeah. you know, like a Thunderbirds evil, evil lair type situation where it's, it's powering. Like a- most, mostly challenging the, the smell, I think. <laughs> yeah. It's just locating like, okay, yeah. this would be horrible. So. And also like active volcanoes, a, there is a wee bit of risk. I mean, I don't know if, if bit dangerous, you've studied yeah. Latin. A wee bit, yeah. <laughs> I've been known to. Small erupt. risk, yeah. See <laughs> uh, Pompeii uh, exhibited. Yeah. So Dave, just before, before I give you the answer, as we do every single time, once Matt, Matt and Becky give their answers, we, as a courtesy, let the guests decide if they want to change their answers because the two are, are famously wrong a lot. So you stick in with your original day, you stick in with future. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with it. Becky's point's really, really good. Um, but I'm thinking you could use that energy to make dispatchable energy so you could move it around potentially just in terms of you know, turbines and things, getting it into the grid. So I'm, I'm going to stay with future. Sticking with it. Okay. And even your Chris Tarrantism there, Fraser, I'm not changing my mind either. That is my final answer. Okay, okay. So we're sticking with it. We've got one fiction, two futures. The answer is... It's the future. So the government in El Salvador specifically has already trialled a new industrial development at the Tecapa Volcano, with the country's leading Bitcoin company set to launch a huge mining warehouse at another volcano in the Gulf of Fonseca early next year. I want to see the risk registers. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the insurance policy. (laughs) Very interesting. There you go. Brilliant. Yeah, just to say thanks to everyone. Obviously, thanks to Dave for the uh, brilliant explanation of all things COP. Um, And also thanks to everyone for listening as well. You've been listening to Local Zero with Matt, Becky and Fraser. If you haven't already, go and find us and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with discussions there. And you can also email us if you need to share longer thoughts. Send your emails to localzeropod at gmail.com. But for now, thanks and see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. bye, bye, Bye-bye.
produced by Bespoken Media.